Okay, HSP episode 12. Today we have a brand new guest, Alex50 from Twitter. And say hi for the say Hello. Uh, that is uh that is me, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so today I'm going to talk about a topic that we've been wanting to talk about for a long time, but like just so much stuff has been getting in the way of it that we haven't been able to, but uh today we're making it happen. So today we're talking about meme ideologies, which is um Basically, as it says on the tin, it's just ideologies that are kind of uh, fake. They don't really, uh, they're not really reading, but like the ideologies that exist and like people are big fans of them. So I'm going to talk about why that is and why we think they exist and why we think uh, they're so, you know, why they have such a hold on people in our age group. So I guess just to start with, the best way to start would just be to just each of us to say what we think uh, meme ideologies are like how how do we define them? How do we identify a meme ideology versus you know an ideology that isn't a meme? Just quick note, by the way, I've just checked for the first time that you asked me to appear on this podcast, and it was the twelfth of March of this year. So yeah, this is very much a long time in the run. <laughs> but uh, the meme ideologies, it is obviously you know the word meme does help describe what it is there, and yeah. I really think it boils down to these groups of ideologies that exist entirely online they're not a real yep. world i mean there are some of them obviously have real world bases but it's, yeah they have bases they're informed by real world stuff but they've been sort of like just collectors and amalgamized into this weird terminally online mess mm -hmm. and i think the main thing is that most of these ideologies they uh they just completely ignore how regular people in the real world function and make yep. massive assumptions in order to organize society in a yeah. way that no real person would ever do. Yep. That's the biggest thing. And like for me, the, the real disconnect always comes from, it's usually people in the first world who have a very insulated idea of what normal human experience is for the majority of human beings in the world. Like when you, when you take a look at someone who lives in, let's say a suburb in Pennsylvania, and this person is maybe a 20 something white dude, and the extent of his political experience has been American politics. And obviously, when you live in those kinds of conditions, you get very, you get very disconnected from, you know, life because the American experience is so heightened. Everything is, everything is just like dialed up to 11. So what usually ends up happening is that these people then retreat into spaces where they need to make sense of the world they live in. So certain worldviews become very appealing when you, when you live that kind of life. And the usual best example is just, as you see, online spaces. Because online spaces are, especially for our generation, they're very safe. They're very comforting. People don't really, you know, if you, no one in real life wants to talk about politics because politics is this thing. It's like, oh, but when you talk, when you talk about politics online, not only do you get to curate your experience, but the things that you can see are less you know abrasive because like there's a disconnect of the screen where it's it's like digital you know you're talking about digital things you're, you're talking to digital people and then what that then engenders is an even more exaggerated sense of or rather a lack of empathy that already exists from living in the first world which is how you can get people who like all of their political education comes from youtubers because Online is the only place that they can engage with politics because they already live such insulated lives. I think as well, uh, when you said about the comfort of the first world, 
online especially because obviously most people don't have their full and twi- twitter mostly most people mm-hmm. don't have their picture and their name so it sort of it removes the yeah, that exists talking about politics in the real world mm-hmm. it's not like when you talk about colleagues about your wages it's there's a little there's the visual cues that everyone gives you when you start yeah. talking about it to just yeah. tie it showing up pretty much whereas mm-hmm. online you can you know you can rant for hours and you can talk about so many things and you've got no idea how much what you're saying yeah. is relatable personally to the other person it's just completely whatever goals goals it's like uh just like how we got here the main like um the main point where internet discourse on in- online because internet discourse online has always existed but it used to be limited to spaces like 4chan spaces like reddit I where it was very yeah 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 <laughs> it was it was very it was very niche and it was very sort of like um it was it, it was it was it was topical you know there would be a forum about like you know the the, the v forum on 4chan where anything would, could go and then people would like usually congregate and see all those types of stuff or like there would be somebody about this maybe like politics but then what would happen is that the user bases there always look the same it was always like a bunch of white dudes so all those dudes would just basically just talk about the same stuff and then they kind of had the same politics where that started to change was around i want to say 2014 where um because of anita sarkeesian i mean we've talked about this before on this podcast oh, with like um anita sarkeesian making uh bread tube videos so um not not i, I said bread tubes early making feminism videos because anita sarkeesian's whole thing was that like she liked video games but then she thought that video games treated women very badly they whenever women were depicted in video games it was never you know it was never it was hardly ever positive because, and this was the first time that she really started to imply a sort of um, relationship between identity and politics online, like prominently, because she said that because most video game developers tended to be white men, there were not enough female voices in the room where those games were being developed to see, actually, I don't think this is a very positive depiction of women. And it was a systemic thing. It wasn't like one person, you know, it wasn't one person's fault. It was the entire gaming industry that had this blind spot. And if the games were to be better, then that aspect of the industry had to improve. That was the whole point of her videos. Yeah, and then of course, because this was the first time, because on YouTube at the time, the only existing political like you know, sphere that existed at the time was mainly YouTube, the YouTube atheism community. And YouTube atheism community. I was, about to, I was about to bring this up. The atheism. Thing. Yeah. This is like the only thing on YouTube that sort of predates like political. Yeah. This was the only time. This was. I'm talking about like early 2010s. And yeah. in the early 2010s, you had amazing atheists. You had uh, Thunderfoot. Those guys. What they mainly did. They didn't really talk about politics. What they mainly did was just dunk on creationists. They would make these playlists of like 2030 videos, just like making fun of you know creationists or being dumb basically so that was the templates that was the blueprints for the you know the standard the standard form of political engagement on youtube being uh play someone's opinion pause it and then laugh at how dumb they are that was what really that was the blueprints for it so when uh, anita sakiri's videos came to youtube and started blowing up naturally the first wave of responses were these atheist youtubers so they did the same thing they did the same thing that they always used to do to these creationists. They put Anita Sarkeesian's video, pause it, love how dumb she is for thinking that like games can be sexist or whatever. And these videos were so popular. I mean, these guys created entire platforms. There were people, 
who had like very small channels before then, but because dunking on Anita Sarkeesian became like the new thing to do, if you wanted a video to do well, it completely just like exploded. And the, the crazy thing is that this was right around the time that YouTube changed their algorithm to favor watch time instead of, you know, yeah. just views. So these videos became longer. And of course, as videos are getting longer, you have to say more. And then the things that they were saying became more and more toxic. And then they would go to the videos and then like brigade the videos, post mean comments. And then Anissa Sarkeesian would turn off the comments. And then, you know, they would make fun of her even more for turning off the comments. So YouTube became this very immediately, like almost overnight, it became this very reactionary space where there were two camps of people. There were regular, rational, facts and logic people, and there were feminist, SJW, you know, irrational, emotional people. And because, again, most of the people around this time, they're coming up, most of them are dudes, most of them are white, the culture at the time really favored this sort of, like, facts and logic. Again, because the YouTube atheism community was so big. The culture really favored this sort of, like, facts and logic, you know, um, foundation for all your beliefs. So basically, any big YouTuber that came up between the years of like 2012 and 2014, they all started doing this anti-SGW thing. It, it was really like well, if you got emotional in any of your videos, that may automatically meant you were wrong. You can't have you have to dissociate all emotion other than laughter you to, to any. You have to basically talk. just become someone who does have empathy. And and remember that at the time. The most popular thing on TV is South Park. The most popular, you know, mood of internet humor was like edgy, ironic, I don't care, caring is dumb, caring is yeah. yeah. So like this was an entire cultural thing that was happening at the time. And it was just this like, you know, this perfect singularity of external forces that combined to create an online environment where right-wing politics naturally had an advantage because right-wing politics are predisposed to people who do not have a lot of empathy. The only way right-wing politics can make sense to you as a person is if it's you don't believe empathy has a place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, 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 if you don't think yourself, then yeah. you're very removed from caring about, you know, yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah, if, if, if fundamentally your idea of politics does not even like, there's no aspect of it that has to do with caring about other people. If caring about other people isn't something that informs any aspect of your politics, right-wing politics will be extremely 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 appealing to you and so what happened is that you have a bunch of people who were making these videos so popular and then at the same time zoe quinn who was um you know a video games reporter she made a review about a game in kotaku and this review basically you know said some stuff about this game and like gamergate is a whole thing that we could probably do a whole other podcast on gamergate but just to summarize it these same anti-SGW people basically saw Zoe Quinn as another example of Anita Sarkeesian, another example of someone bringing feminism and SGW politics into a space that was formally not having nothing to do with those, you know, those political leanings. So they were seen as like, you know, invaders, they were seen as foreigners. And so people felt the need to protect the sanctity of this thing, this thing this youtube space this gaming space it was very much entertainment had bled into almost obviously it's been in tv for years it's been in yes. movies for years where yes. a lot of, there was a lot of people online that felt like games were sort of untouched because they weren't mm -hmm. exposed to the mass there but now was... the internet was exposing them to it was exposing gamer culture to everyone 
yes way more than it Precisely. had before it became as oh we have to protect this and look yeah it, it was this sort of like identitarian that was like the first time where you really saw themselves where we saw the phenomenon that's completely common now but like it was the first time we really saw people like this like your political beliefs are your identity explicitly where like yeah. if you called yourself a gamer online that didn't just mean you played games that meant you were someone who thought sjw's were the devil you were someone who thought that feminism was bad you were someone who thought that anita sarkeesian is like a villain and you're doing a righteous you know act by harassing her on twitter there was a there was a time i remember on twitter where people would brag about being blocked by anita sarkeesian like it was a it was a thing to be proud of like yes feminist frequency blocked me so around this this was happening i want to say 2013 2014. so at the height of gamergate was when we saw all the harassment campaigns we saw everything and this was like the dominant mood of engagement politics online there wasn't this sort of you know at least obviously there have always been spaces online where people talk about leftist politics but when it came to co capturing the mainstream the dominant mood was this sort of reactionary gamergatism and that was the case throughout you know 2015 2016 almost i want to say getting deep into 2016 and then what, you, what we then saw was that the, the forum adapted and matured. And what then happened was that actual right-wing politics people also started to invade these spaces because they saw, it, well, I'm talking about the Stormfront as like the real right-wing Nazi people. They saw at the time that these people were basically doing God's work in their eyes. These people were cultivating audiences of young mostly dudes mostly white dudes and they were breeding them to be reactionaries the things that they were saying even though the person might just think oh i'm just being an anti-sgw i just hate sg i'm not a nazi i'm not racist i just hate sgw you know but they were already training their audience to see any politics that is rooted in empathy and rooted in you know the opposition of unfair structures as inherently illogical inherently you know inherently lesser than the politics that is rooted in intellectualism which is basically just thinly disguised pro status quo justification of like this is the way things have always been and everyone that's smart knows it and the only way you can think that we can change society is if you're dumb but that was basically just the root of the opposition to anti-SGWs. And I think it's part of what you said as well, when you said, you just started that by saying actual right-wingers, because there is a lot of people who are in this sort of game against space, the type of people that are watching these videos and liking them and think they were funny, that necessarily in real life would not have been right-wing. They would have probably, they might have voted for Obama, they might believe that, you know, these healthcare Absolutely. programs are a good thing, but they, they had, because they had this comfortable space where they didn't really have to you exactly. know, feel any empathy towards anyone else, they felt, oh, you know what? Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, I like all these things, but I think it is silly that so-and-so is getting offended. It's a yeah, funny it's video. Funny, You're stupid. just having fun, you know? And so what yeah. they saw was that even though the content of the material was not necessarily agreeing with their politics, the mode of engagement, the assumptions that we made were very, very similar. And the, I think the straw that broke the camera's back basically was uh, PewDiePie when he said the N-word in his video. Oh, the uh, and PUBG when... video. Was it, was it a stream or was it a video? Yeah, it was, it was, it was a stream. It, he was playing PUBG yeah. and then he called someone the N-word basically on stream. And then when people, you know, reacted in a certain way and then he saw the people that defended him and he saw the people that were against him, 
it was the same calculation of like what is the play here the most the more popular play is to side with the people who are like lol triggered sgws that was the, that was the first time that like we really saw this uh, word trigger become this sort of like weaponized thing that was used against people who yeah. are like you know coming from because the other side of this is that while all of this is happening on youtube on tumblr the opposite is happening where people are doing this sort of like proto leftist education online the same way that youtube was doing this proto right-wing education online so tumblr was a very queer very welcoming space people were talking about like things that are basically normal now things like pronouns things like um, multiple gender identities this was very very early internet days where this sort of stuff wasn't as normalized as it was now so tumblr they were seen as like basically crazy people like hello this guy thinks there's 96 genders blah blah blah, blah. these people think you can change your pronouns this was Remember, all these conversations happened in real life, but this was the first time they were happening online in, like, social media spaces. For YouTube as well, you said about how, like, it was the easy path, the most popular path to take by just being like, oh, triggered, LMO. That was the group, for the group of YouTube, that was, Mm -hmm. within the bubble that was YouTube, that was, you know, if you took that opinion, you were going to be massively popular. I mean, H3H3, guys like that. I watched a quick Twitter clip just recently where he's just casually just like throwing out the n-word like it's nothing and that was yeah. only you know 2017 if that but if you had these sort of opinions in the broader you know whole world you'd be look, look at as ridiculous you'd look insane yeah. but because that, the bubble sort of hadn't, hadn't burst yet and hadn't spread across multiple platforms you know Tumblr mm-hmm. still kept its left-wing ideology and same as YouTube it was yeah it didn't really there wasn't much anyone crossing whereas now like Twitter nowadays it's complete massive every sort of type of person yeah there's a sort of i'm getting there twitter has become like a singularity because all these platforms collapse basically and only twitter like kind of survives so it's become this like melting point where you can like see all sorts of ideologies like coexisting and it leads to very like friction it leads to a lot of friction so there's no longer sort of an opinion that you can take to win an entire bubble on side you can win you can win your ideology on side but it will still be because of how everything melted and collapsed yeah because of all that cross-pollination you always there's nothing you can say that will not attract the ire of a certain audience but before all these dynamics took place in closed spaces but now they're just a lot there's a lot more like meshing there's a lot more you know uh, coagulation so just to go back the point of the tumblr uh, tangent was to say that this whole terminology of like triggered blah 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 that came from tumblr that came from people trying to you know tumblr was basically pro-social justice so tumblr believed in like you know safe spaces they believed in trigger warnings they believed in you know gender identities and because of the us versus them uh you know uh mentality that came from youtube tumblr itself became like this sort of um personification of feminism that's why people would be like i don't hate feminism i just hate tumblr feminism that thinks that um men are evil and there's one million genders blah blah, blah. you hear a lot of that so distinguishing between second and third wave feminism everyone loves to tell you well i don't believe it i love feminism. Yeah. It's great but mm-hmm. i don't believe in third wave feminism yeah third wave feminism, feminism of uh, <laughs> 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 yeah of identity policy blah, blah, blah. so that was why pewdiepie was able to be like oh they're triggered and then basically he just kept on you know st- testing the water seeing what he could get away with first it was the n-word then it was uh, him asking the guys to be like you know death uh, he he had these people on fiverr to hold a sign that said death to jews and then it just he just kept on escalating and then people started to realize that oh wow pewdiepie is actually a nazi like that's crazy and so at that point of escalation was when we reached this like crossroads where we had reached the height of the logical you know conclusion of this 
thing that this bubble that opened with like Anita Sarkeesian. Now we reached a point where any like famous YouTuber, it wasn't possible in YouTube and at a point that was going to be coming very soon. It was no longer possible on YouTube to just be a political. Everyone had to know whether you were an SJW or you were an anti-SJW. That was the dominant social currency. And right as this was happening was the 2016 election when Donald Trump like side running. And this same thing happened in real life as well. People who used to be, you know, apolitical, they used to escape, they used to skate by on just like, you know, plausible deniability. Trump made it so everyone had to put all their cards on the table. Are you pro-Trump or are you anti-Trump? I remember, do you remember what else happened in 2016? Brexit, the same exact thing. Are you pro-Brexit or are you remain? So in 2016, it was this like, this extremely like volatile period in society where politics was no longer this thing where only people who care about it care about it. In 2016, politics became something that everyone had to think about every single day. That's why it, it feels like since 2016, everyone has just been on Twitter every single day of their life. Like it just hasn't stopped. It's just been it's just been a roller coaster, and we've just been. We, we reached the peak in 2016, and since 2016, we've just been going down, and we're still racing, we're still on the roller coaster. And what then happened was you saw a H-Bomber guy. This, is a, this was one of the few YouTubers at the time that was pro-SJW. So remember this dynamic we just talked about of like, um, the YouTubers had to draw a line in the sand. Are you for us or are you against us? There were a few YouTubers who were against the anti they were against the anti-SGW, so the pro-SGWs, people like H Bomber Guy, people like Sean, people like ContraPoints, people like Lindsay Ellis, people like um Cat Black, T1G. These people were very pro-SGW. They were they were they were leftists, but they were they were not necessarily, you know, the sort of leftism that we expect today when we hear someone say they're leftists. That came later. But for now, these people were basically social leftists, to use the political compass, which is a whole other thing. We can probably do other podcasts about the political compass. But these people were very much leftists of the social variety. They believed that, like, black... They believed that racism was wrong, sexism was wrong, um, homophobia and transphobia were wrong, you know, like, equal rights, that sort of, like, you know, social progress. They were cultural leftists. We hadn't seen the economic aspect coming to play yet. So when this started to happen was when we started to see basically h bomber guy he made this video that was called um all right cringe and the, the whole aspect of his video was basically at the time it was very powerful but like now you can look back and you can you can critique it a lot but basically his whole angle was that because of like south park and all this stuff the currency that people understood was like something is cringe or not because the way those videos started the way those anti-feminist videos started was that look at these cringe feminists they're dyeing their hair red they're screaming at lecturers you know they're they're just cringe they're cringe and and it's like if you're an sgw you're cringe you're embarrassing if you're an anti-sgw you're logical and cool and that was the dominant mood of thought what his bomber guy did was basically make this series of videos of like popular alt-right people and he basically did the same exact thing where he's like these people are cringe these people are embarrassing these people are nonsensical and so what that did was that basically when those videos blew up that was when the dynamic shifted on youtube being an anti-sgw became cringe and it was no longer something that was you know cool yeah 
And right as this was happening was when Trump won the election in real life. Brexit happened in real life. And all of a sudden, people were like, oh, wow, right-wing politics are a thing. And why not necessarily for that? Because look at the same people who are for that stuff. Because all these anti-SJW YouTubers started supporting Trump. They started supporting Brexit. People like Sargon of Akkad basically joined the UK party. Basically... And married themselves, attached themselves at the hip to Nigel Farage, to all these like uh, Trumpian politics. And then what happened was that normal people in the real world realized that actually Trumpian politics are awful and we don't believe in this. And that was the exact same period of time where um, being an anti SJW became sort of like cringe. And basically, that was the period where Tumblr, you know, won the culture wars, where you started to see universities actually created safe spaces, actually started respecting pronouns. All this stuff is very recent, you know? It, very similar, it does also happen to coincide with the rise of sort of that era, obviously, with the Brexit and Trump. The same thing happened at the same time, whereas what didn't really exist prior then was the sort of social democratic left, you know, the... Yeah, the, the, the Bernie, Sanders, Bernie Sanders, the Jeremy, uh, Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn left, because and that was the first time Bernie Sanders ran for the primary. That was yeah, like, he had, hadn't done it before. You so had these it, channels that existed for ages, but it, like, so like that sort of left wing YouTube that was like Secular Talks, TYT, Pacman Show, that sort of thing. Yeah. It's not left left, but they're Bernie Sanders left. Yeah, they, exactly. During the whole, you know, gaming yeah. thing, they're most of their states was, oh, let's just carry on talking about left-wing issues, and then it's, yeah, they it's ignored just, it. Let's just agree with, oh, yeah, yeah, and it's a bit, you know, no one wants to be this, like, extreme, like, Tumblr, mm-hmm. red-haired leftist, let's just ignore that. Whereas, yeah. because of the, the mainstream appearing with the Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, those people, you know, these channels started getting millions of subscribers, they, and then they mm-hmm. hit Thomas North era. They had, were forced to pivot, and nowadays, you, you go on those channels, and they'll mostly agree with the being we anti SJW is cringe. But yeah. For a while, they just sort of ignored it because it was yeah. not. It, it took it a big change. There, there was not enough social world. capital there for you to make a video like that and it would blow it, up. It would not would not make any sense if you were mm-hmm. like a smaller on the channel to make those, one of those videos. And, with, and you, you'd know for a fact you'd get completely stonewalled in the comments because you'd have hundreds of the PewDiePie fan types, those types, yep. just completely obliterating yep. your video. Mm-hmm. It was not your social capital. Yeah, it was not that. Didn't have that in order to have that opinion. Mm-hmm. And then, so what you then see post-2016 is the landscape becomes completely different. Now, the people who blow up are the actual leftists because now, now that people are living under right-wing governments, they're being more sympathetic to leftism because what happened before 2016 was complacency. We'd had eight years of, you know, Obama, eight years of, in some people's cases, eight years of, you know, uh, David Cameron, Gordon Brown type uh, politics, like we've we we basically had eight years of neoliberalism, and then what happened was that that new that neoliberalism ended up being a gateway to explicit right wing politics, and then people understood that being a centrist, being a sort of like I'm, you know, socially liberal, economically conservative, that sort of calculus. Most people started to come to the conclusion that that sort of calculus just only helped the right wing, basically. The left wing has never been helped by people saying, I'm neither left nor right. The only people that helps are right wingers because it gives them plausible deniability. But leftists don't want plausible deniability. Leftists want explicit achievement of their goals. They want to be identified as leftists. They want to be identified as believing in these things. So then, once ContraPoint's uh, transition started, once she started actually making videos showing her face, not being afraid of these people, 
once Lizzie Ellis started making those types of videos, the dominant social capital on YouTube became this sort of, you know, pro-SJW, pro-leftist, basically BreadTube, what we now know as BreadTube, started in yeah. 2016 for that reason. And so what happened is that all these people who didn't, they weren't like soldiers willing to die for anti-SJWs. They just thought that it was cool, you know? They thought that, oh, these videos are funny, I like them. All of a sudden, the only videos that are blowing up now are, you know, pro-SJW stuff. And Trump just won in real life. And they have real life friends. And they're now, all those same people are realizing that, oh, actually, I'm on the losing side here. So what happened is that they just simply switched sides. They just became, they went from being gamergators to being, you know, ContraPoints fans. They went from watching um, uh, Armored Skeptic videos to watching Sean videos. But in real life, nothing actually changed. All that changed was that one type of video was popular on YouTube and then another type of popular became another type of video became popular on youtube and the ones original and, people that i spoke about as well the ones that were probably economically left-wing but they just the only thing they saw online that was popular was the anti-sww crowd they sort of took a carrot and a stick bit as in when these channels start blowing up these bread tube channels and they start promoting economically left things which was not yeah. really no one was speaking about any any sort of economic left no chance no chance at all they see these things they're like oh hang on I like those things. And then, so they get dragged this direction. They start watching these popular videos by these left-wing YouTubers. And then mm -hmm. with that package comes socially left, you know, it's simply, you know, it's quite silly being at the SJW. It doesn't really make sense. Yeah. You know, this stuff, that, this is the cringe tech. You've been doing it wrong the whole time because yep. of this economic leftism that appeared online that no one had seen before. What resonates most of regular cultural capital? Which is probably, I can say, the first time, at least for Gen Z, at least, for our age group, that's the first time we've ever lived in a time where being right-wing was, like, something that could get you ostracized socially. Yeah. No one wanted to associate with, with right-wingers. The only people that people wanted to associate with were people who believed in, you know, Medicare for all, you know, those sorts of, like, that, that was the social capital. And so, I think where, and then at the same time, uh, Tumblr gets sold, so everyone leaves Tumblr, goes to Twitter. Yeah, they have the mass Tumblr. Um, yeah, that was just, quite funny, to be fair, the whole yeah. porn, and then the, just, the, the number of users just fell off a cliff. Yeah, <laughs> they, they basically, what happened was that uh, Tumblr banned porn from the site, and then everyone left Tumblr and, and went to Twitter. So Twitter became this sort of, and at the same time as that happened, Donald Trump became president and started, you know, being on Twitter. So every right winger, you know, wanted to get noticed by Trump and then many of them yeah. started using Twitter actively too. So what then so happened the millennial was that Twitter Gen became... Z faction. It, yeah. obviously, obviously we're ignoring here boomers in NX who are still concentrated to this day and always will be on mm -hmm. Facebook. Yeah. But the millennial Gen Z faction obviously split across YouTube, mm -hmm. Tumblr, Twitter has now yeah. pretty much congregated entirely on Twitter. On, in Twitter, mainly because of that melting storm. And the reason Facebook didn't factor into this is because Facebook's user base is just too old. Facebook doesn't yeah, yeah. drive culture. No one looks at Facebook for cultural trends. They look yeah. at YouTube, they look at TikTok now, which is the X factor that came in basically today. That 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 wasn't factoring because it didn't exist in this time. But like going forward, Twitter became the melting pot for like all political stuff. And that was where we really saw the rise of like things like political compass. People wanted to, just like astrology, human beings have always wanted to like know things about themselves. So the political compass test was this easy thing 
where you could just take the test and you could see your location on a chart and be like, oh, that's cool. I'm, you know, I know. this, I'm, I'm on, I'm on this quadrant, I'm on that quadrant. Fuck political compasses. I hate it so much. It's set internet political discourse back so much because everything became prescriptive. There was no conversation happening. There was no dialogue. There was no sort of, you know, what, like there was, there was just no, there was no Socratic exchange of ideas going on. What it became was this like holistic um wrap it up in a bowl like boiling down this like atomization this like reduction of all your political all the all the political complexity all the nuance everything just boil it down into this one graph and that dot is like it's a political spectrum but what it did to political discourse was put it all in the boxes it just yep. put all of it, it into it, like it, you're it, in this it, box you're in this yeah, box you're in this it's box like, and then it, became, it was well, you know, I'm slightly more left than you are. You're slightly more right than I am. It was, a, you know, yeah. people had genuine differences in opinion, but it was a gradual, yeah. you went from yeah, one side was, to the it, other. it was a gradual thing, yep. And then what happened was that when the political compass, I mean, I, I read the whole academic paper on this, but like basically what political compass did was it basically just create factions, almost like Harry Potter houses. People were top left, top right, bottom left, bottom right. And that became something of like, that was how you started to see the rise of like, and caps you said see the rise of like tankies you said see the rise of like anarchists those it was the political compass that accelerated that because those communities already existed but when the political compass was created those had those people had something to rally around they were like all of us are in the bottom right together we're all and caps that was where you started to see subreddits yeah, like were weren't even, they weren't in these they weren't in these extremely like ancap groups they weren't yeah. in, but they were like they look at a political compass they'd get somewhere in the middle of the bottom left and they're yeah. like what kind of opinion do you need to have to be in the very exactly bottom? that was and that was like, oh, the, that was the I'll tipping do a quick point. Google, what's that mean? Google what, 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 Google, the, what capitalism means? What, oh shit! What is the, yeah, it was <laughs> like what is the anchor position on abortion? What is the anchor position on? It, it, it was this sort of like inversion of political dialogue normally, where someone is their own person, but they have an experience of the world that informs their position on certain topics. Now, your political knowledge became an identity where to continue to exist in that identity you had to ascribe to certain beliefs and so what you what we then saw was this explosion of like you know uh with the with the picardia memes of like the yellow circle wearing glasses and it's like this is what ancas believe with them um, uh, <laughs> mcdonald's um, atomic missiles like that was yeah, what you the privilege you never violates the naps so you blow it out yes exactly once the political ideologies became memeified that was when we saw the explosion of like yeah, all I was about to say, the meme ideologies was sort of the perfect package. To yes, exactly. Because you can, exactly. You can put anything in those four squares. You can put anything. You can, pick, you can put Marvel <laughs> characters. You can put anything you want in those four squares, and there was somebody somewhere that will find it funny. And as exactly. a result, like, oh, look, I, I, got, I like this character and this character. Yeah. This square, uh, you know. And, and that was how political the political compass was basically the perfect storm, the catalyst uh, of all of this that we're talking about. So after 2017, 2018, that was when we started to see this sort of like politics as identity to the extreme where people knew that they, they didn't just believe in certain issues. They were an anarcho-capitalist. They were a, you know, a Hoppian. They, they were just everything. And then the same thing happened on the left too, where 
uh, if you were if you believed in libertarianism all the way down and you were all the way down left that meant you were an amprim basically that meant you were you know fully you, you didn't believe society should be organized at all you were like a complete <laughs> absolute you know human beings should just be hunter gatherers again and if you were on all the way on the top left you were a fully marxist leninist like stalinist that was the first that was the first crystallization of like people online identifying themselves as like marxists and it's like a big community you know that was the first time and so not to go on a tangent on my own political journey because like my my case is very specific being someone from nigeria which is a very right-wing country when you, when you grow up in a country like Nigeria, there's certain assumptions that you have about society. Things like markets just being automatic. Things like, you know, um, privatization being always good because Nigeria privatized and the line, the number went up, you know. So there are certain assumptions that being from Nigeria engendered to me. So when I, when I was existing in the internet on this space and I was taking these quizzes, I would take the quiz based on like my understanding of politics and I would I would end up in like the bottom right where all the uncaps were. So I was like, okay, this is interesting. Yeah. At the time, I didn't have the maturity and the sort of political education to be like, wow, my upbringing in Nigeria has really engendered assumptions that are extremely right wing. My understanding was just like, oh, so this is what I am. Cool. So I naturally started looking at, you know, all the uncap spaces, like, you know, who are the people that are there? And I would have conversations and i'd realize that like there were some things that we agreed on and i'm like yeah markets you know work i would i, I used to write articles at this time about why you know markets are good why you know um why a, a voluntary exchange was good like just basic economics do, do sorts of things supply and demand all this stuff i i went to school so i knew all this stuff but the disconnect for me happened in this same period where uh trump started you know gaining prominence and i saw these people who called themselves ancaps we're supporting Trump. And I'm like, hold on. How are you supporting someone who <laughs> is for building a border and keeping Muslims out? And all their rationalizations were done. So I was like, oh, actually, these people are idiots. <laughs> it was my conclusion. So when I stopped identifying as an anchor, basically, um, that was when I started to enter this like buffer zone of like, I'm going to be someone who is not extreme because my the way I rationalized it was that these ANCAPs were just like extreme basically. But my beliefs were too discreet. I believed in some things here, some things here. Because the other thing too was that I was extremely anti-war because like basically anyone that's is anti-war because like everyone hates America. You know? So yeah, seeing yeah. these ANCAPs cheerlead the US military, it was, like, it was dumb, you know. So when I got to basically the new space that I found was bro. And neoliberal was this sort of like very sort of like centrist Macron, Hillary Clinton. They're basically extreme status quo people. Well, and they would call it the, the politics of reason. And, oh, uh, yeah, definitely. They don't believe in science. They don't believe in, you know, they don't believe in reaction and they don't believe in revolution. They're the steady ship that will guide society yeah, yeah. through any hardship. And, and decisions, read The Economist, come from LSE. Exactly, that's not exactly. <laughs> and the disconnect for me there was realizing that, like, these people actually want to the world better. You would hear some more left-leaning people in, you know, neoliberal spaces talk about, like, you know, but, like, poverty exists and we should do something about it. And the neoliberals would be like, well, if you check this chapter of the economic textbook, you will see why uh, it doesn't actually... Uh, help Not to try out poverty. You yeah. need to provide them the 
um, basis to, you know, get themselves out of it the right way. And it was this sort of like, wow, these people are just completely disconnected from like any sort of reality and are just like completely in their own heads. And that was when in real life, uh, one of my in real life friends, Selena, she was like a fully like, you know, she was a proper socialist. And I used to argue with her at the time because I'm just like, my assumptions again as a Nigerian person are like, wait, the government can't control everything because government are idiots. <laughs> so it wasn't until I actually sat down and like properly started like reading, educating myself that I started to ask sort of the right questions. And the main tipping points for me came in 2017 when like Bitcoin exploded. And then I saw all these people defending Bitcoin that I knew obviously was just like a complete scam and like nonsense. And I'm just like, wow, every sort of like, you know, every sort of like capital, like anything that you can like justify capitalism with, you can apply that same argument with Bitcoin. And I fucking hate Bitcoin. So why have I spent all this time justifying capitalism? Put that right Bitcoin, the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> like Bitcoin is literally the logical conclusion of capitalism of thinking that the government needs to be out of everything, all currency should be decentralized, everything should be decentralized. And like I'm writing 500, 1,000, 2,000 word articles about why Bitcoin is bad. And all the arguments I'm using about why Bitcoin is bad apply exactly to capitalism itself. And I'm just like, wow, that's actually crazy. I spent my whole life basically living under capitalism and thinking that like, of course, this was how things are. And it wasn't until that point that I started to read these Marxist text properly not just reading them to see how i can prove them wrong which was how i used to do before a lot of people do like, yeah they start off, they listen to yeah. someone and they're like what can i pick what can i take yeah. from this what can i extract what can i argue against and exactly. be like, you know what? let's try and understand why these people think this way yeah. you know why is this a viable idea for them yeah it was this sort of like just having to teach myself basically because i was how old was i like 17 18 i didn't know shit <laughs> but i thought i was yeah. It wasn't until I actually started reading the stuff properly that she understood, like, wow, this is actually, if you're someone who doesn't believe in war, if you're someone who doesn't believe in, like, unfair systems, this is making sense to me. And that was how I was able to arrive basically at the promised land of, like, you know, believing all the things I believe now. And even from there, I still ended up growing more, learning more things, learning more concepts, applying them in different things, started reading more advanced stuff. And then that was basically how I arrived at the position where I am now which um, is basically just like the standard sort of like Marxist-Leninist view of the world where I understand what colonialism did to the world. I understand why imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism. I understand how Nigeria was affected by being colonized and the, the conditions that being colonized created in Nigeria that led to the people who went in power. All that I learned from reading Lenin and reading Marx and applying it to Nigeria. And I think there is almost what saved me because all my life my political my my engagement in politics has always been grounded in nigeria because i'm from nigeria so everything i did i I took in politically was always in the context of how does this apply to nigeria my country and how can it make nigeria my country better which is how i've arrived at the point where i am now of like looking at all these people like thomas sankara amelka cabral um samora machel all these like uh kwame nkrumah all these African leaders in that era, they believed in this exact thing. They believed yeah. in, you know, self-determination. They believed in anti-imperialism. And that, for me, that grounded me and that prevented me from b- being the sort of person who just, their politics aren't grounded in anything. It's just like purely a meme. That saved me. But the problem is that for most people, for the majority of people that were in my shoes, they completely went in the opposite direction. 
they just went into this sort of like they can only understand politics as a sort of like internet currency and so if you want to be in this discord if you want to get a validation likes from this youtuber or this streamer you have to believe these certain things and it's not none of it is grounded in anything none of it has any basis it's just a sort of like song and dance that you memorize not something you actually you know yeah give it's a not shit something about. that actually informs you yeah. yeah like you got you can have a real life conversation with any of these people these people can't see world events and understand them they That's can't how they see can... something happens and just think how does this affect where i'm from yeah and, you know and, the and not, not that. around me yeah they can't perform any sort of material analysis or anything if they see america invading iraq it doesn't register that like apart from like a talking point that they memorize it doesn't register that like oh wow imperialism needs resources to extract to to continue to function that's how these people can you know um valorize countries like sweden and denmark and then they shit on countries like vietnam and laos even though vietnam and laos are literally marxist countries and sweden and denmark are just social democracies that exist because they have surplus of wealth from centuries of monarchism and colonialism all that material analysis is not registering because their politics does not emphasize you know, engage with the real world in those dialectic, historical, materialist terms. Permanently yeah. online people as well have this big disconnect between just regular people of places. They just see yeah. a lot of these things as headlines and as, you know, this is a war. And, you know, they can argue against the yeah. war and all this shit, but they're not, they never look at it in the perspective of, imagine what it would be like to be an Iraqi in 2003. You know, imagine what it would be like to wake up yep. in the morning to bombs going off. They don't understand. They just, no one makes that connection. They just think, yeah. oh, and when it's it's, crazy. Oh, US is, we're the bad guy, you know, don't do this, this is bad. It's crazy it's that, like, even when, even when I was an ANCAP, I would look at some tweets, and I'm just like, wow, you're so close. Like, it, I was defending North Korea in, like, 2015. I was, I was in 2016, 20, I was like, America needs to leave North Korea alone. What has North Korea done to them? Why can America not point its guns at the people that are, at the police that are killing black people in America? Why can't they focus on themselves while they're still turning outwards? And I couldn't just connect the dots then. And the crazy thing for me is that, like, that empathy that comes with being someone that isn't from America, where you can understand that, like, these countries are disadvantaged from the start. They don't have the luxury of being the only country that wasn't destroyed after World War II. They don't have the luxury of being a country that, you know, had uh, uh, six centuries of being a monarchy of just extracting wealth. There's just so much world surplus that exists in the first world now. And it makes the people who are from the first world have lives that are basically sheltered. They don't understand how life is, you know, outside the first world. And that's what really, that's what really gets to the heart of that disconnect where you see so many people nowadays where, now we're finally on topic, where this, this meme ideologies that they get, all of that is still searching for, they're searching for something. They're searching for something to connect to, to make everything mean something, to make everything, you know, relevant. Because the lives that they live up till now hasn't really been connected to anything. There's been some stuff, there's been Occupy Wall Streets, there's been, there's been things, but... Things that are just sort of kissing, at the, they're just sort yes. of, they're reaching out tendrils yeah. to what could be something, but never quite, yeah. never quite reaching that Never point. quite arriving. And, and, and... It's a shame because the, the, the thought leaders of our time, these bread tubers, what then happened is that as all this was going on, as time is passing, as we I get to like 2018... The thought leaders of our time, the bread tubers. Yeah. <laughs> That's a brilliant sentence. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the thought leaders, the, the Lindsay Ellis's, the Sean's, 
as time went on, they sort of never really they never really left that YouTube mode. Because YouTube yeah. mode isn't really privileging all this that we're talking about. The YouTube mode is still privileging, as we talk about in the BreadTube um, episode, it's still privileging a sort of like politics as consumption where it's just, it's no different from a TV show, you know? If you're a fan of Lindsay Ellis, you believe that Disney is bad and you believe that, you know, blah, blah, blah. If you're a fan of H. Bombaga, you believe that, you know, anti-SGWs are cringe, the alright is cringe, but like... It's very much a, not... a background quest. For yeah, it's, well, it's, it's cursory, it's pre-packaged, it's like, as Reno says, baby bird food. And the problem is that these people basically never left that state of development. They didn't have the path that so many people like me took, where even though they bounced around, they were guided by the right things, and they arrived at the correct conclusions in the end. They yeah. sort of never left that, you know, nymph stage. That's that they, they never they, they never reached the chrysalis. They they didn't become the fully mature, politically educated people, because the problem is that YouTube mood is very antithetical to educating yourself and doing boring shit like reading or. Even it doesn't even have to be books, reading articles, reading scholarly journals. Just educating yourself. You can do it just by following people on Twitter. Yeah, having conversations. Having conversations. I mean, what what YouTube mood did was basically tell people that like they just sit down and watch YouTube, and when they watch all the right people, they've politically won. Yeah. They 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 know all the right arguments. They know all the right talking points, but it's not real because they've not internalized it. It comes back to this this Western seeker of comfort. This whole yeah. you know everything can just be you can do all these things, you can have political opinions, but you can have them as like a nice hobby, as something that yeah. you just like you enjoy and you feel it's good and you argue about it sometimes. Yeah. It's just a nice little hobby. And like ultimately at the end of the day, you know, whatever happened in your country, because there isn't, you know, this this a communist party is never gonna become the charge of the United States. Yep. Not mm-hmm. So no matter what, who wins the presidency, it's not the end of the world for most of these people. Yeah. You know, these terminally online people, it's not... Whoever's president every other week is not going to be hugely... Because they're mostly white, they're mostly yeah. rich, they're mostly suburban. It's not going to make a huge difference to them. So it doesn't... They don't have to think of it in an empathetic manner, in a, a manner that thinks, what's about the material conditions of people around me? Because it doesn't yeah. make a difference. Um, All it does it, is it gives them the brownie points and it makes them have a better status. Yeah, it's all social capital. It's all a sort of calculus that you, 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 you have in your head of like, what is the right thing to say? Who are the right people to follow to get the social capital, to get the sense of belonging? And it's, it's, all, it's all an escape because in their lives, their parents are all the same sort of like suburban. Because this thing with the suburbs, it's, it, it undermines community because everyone in the suburbs is just their own fish in their own tank. There's yeah. no no one. People live in the suburbs. They don't know who their neighbor. Are, they there's, don't know who their people, neighbors are. It's people in the suburbs. You, you, I mean, you might see your neighbors, but you don't see your neighbors. And like, you're not seeing yeah. your neighbors. You're not seeing what your neighbors' lives are like. Yeah. You're just seeing your neighbors as the abstract idea that you're like the person that yeah. waves at you when you go getting your car in the morning. That's what you see your neighbors as. In a smaller, tight community, you see your neighbors as whole extensions of our family. You see mm-hmm. them as someone who has their own problems, who has their own things that occur to them in their life. It's yeah. not just sort of like, they're not background characters. In your and life. That's, the, that's another disconnect between the first world and the third world, because in the third world, this sort of mindset of like, it takes a village is a lot more prominent. Where you go to yeah. countries like Nigeria, countries like Vietnam, countries like, you know, uh, even uh, in Latin America, countries like Cuba even, or like, there's a lot more 
community involved. People know their entire street, everyone on their street. If you need groceries, they can get it for you. Things like that are just normalized. But in the West, it's sort of like, you know, man in a castle, sort of like uh, the, the, the end point of society is to uh, get a job, get a house, marry, move to the suburbs, and like just pile up money, basically. And that's not, there's, n- there's no other, fr- there's nothing else to do in society. And the, the main problem that that engenders is just like this lack of empathy that then informs the sort of, you know, lack of material basis for politics that leads people to things like all the meme ideology. So the, the things, the, the most common one, well, not the most common, but like a very common one that I see especially is this sort of like anarcho-primitism, uh, anarcho primitivism where it's like black and green yeah (laughs) it's like black and green it's a black and green flag and and the entire logic behind uh and prim politics is that let me see if i can find an official definition for because it's very like non-civilized yeah it's basically return to monkey is the ideology you know the the memes of like oh humans uh, human humanity was a mistake. Uh, civilization was a mistake. Return to monkey, and it's sort of this sort, this sort of like it's a very easy ideology to sell because it's like oh look at global warming because this is remember as all going on if we're going back to the timeline as all this is going on is where climate change becomes a larger and larger you know presence in politics in in the 2010s everyone who believed in global warming was just seen as this sort of like you know tree hugger it wasn't really a thing. That yeah, People it thought was, was like important. It was the green pie politics. Yeah, so yeah, it was, it was, it was a meme. <laughs> but like now, <laughs> now, <laughs> exactly. But now, climate change is like something that you can't ignore to the point where something like Amprim has become a sort of like catharsis to that, where it's like I want to save the world because I know the world is dying. Look and this ideology, industrialization, you know, the whole like, yeah. what is the quote by that guy? Industrialization. I have to find. Carry on talking. I have to find it while you say it. Oh yeah. <laughs> It's, it's, this, it's this sort of like grasping at something that can, you know, give a solution. And so the, the whole Anprim ideology is basically just saying that, like, you know, if humanity never gathered in civilizations, if we were still hunter-gatherers, then, like, everything would be better. And obviously, that's an insane... That's, that's the sort of ideology that, like, it's almost like no longer anarchism because, like, yeah, the thing that people well, forget is that it, anarchism and communism were linked because... Anarchism is a leftist ideology, first and foremost. Anarchism already opposes oppressive structures. And I think this is where people really get lost, because when they see anarchism of like, oh, there's no government, everyone is just chilling, they still internalize it as like, I'm just in my house every day, and like, I can still go to the store and buy food, but like, I don't have to pay taxes, there's no government, no one can arrest me. Like, the, the understanding of society is so colored by this like, first world insulation that like, <laughs> they can't really, really process what society means. Because the thing with anarchism is that anarchism in the actual leftist sense is just total opposition to any oppressive structure, which includes government. This is where they, they disagree with like um they disagree with Marxist Leninists because Marxist Leninists think that basically the only people that should be that should have authority in a society should be people who believe in leftist politics. So it should be Marxists and communists and socialists. Those are the only people that should be able to have power. There should only be one party in a country, and that's the socialist party. No one else should be allowed to hold political office. And then this system of authority is what can enable workers to actually control 
every aspect of society. So um, things like farming, things like industry, things like services, all those aspects of society are controlled by workers. That's what Marxist-Leninists believe. Anarchists believe that this structure should not be formalized. There shouldn't be any sort of like socialist party that has authority. You know, it's this sort of understanding of society where humanity governs itself and no one's boots is on top of me. No one can have authority over me. Now, obviously, I'm clearly biased. I don't believe in anarchism, but I can respect that anarchists are on my side. Anarchists don't believe in oppressive systems. Where these meme ideologies get lost is that they sort of lose sight of that anarchism part and they just focus on whatever the suffix is so the industrial revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race that's the yeah. yeah that's, that's the, the uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's just sort of, of that. They, they just lose sight of the actual anarchism part and they only focus on the suffix which is then whatever the meme is so if, in the case of an, an anarcho primitivism prim, anarcho primitivism it's like everyone should return to monkey in the yeah. case of like anarcho uh, transhumanism is everyone should become cyborgs in the case of like there's just so yeah. many and like they're just all this sort of like um and even to get less extreme right even to get less extreme even if you go to the other sides of the political compass on every extreme, there's a sort of, you know, uh, between ANCAS, between, you know, uh, the, <laughs> the Max Sterner sort of uh, libertarians. If you go to the top left, the sort of like um, super niche, you know, uh, leftist ideologies that are very sort of um, not even really having anything to do with building anymore. Just the sort yeah, of the like... the ones that require a lot of... Like yeah, the ones that require a lot of like suffixes and a lot. You need a huge uh, pile to fit in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All all of those things are basically just losing sight of the entire point of politics, which is, you know, politics is helping society. Politics is improving lives. Politics is like, how do you want to organize society? And in those terms, the the more specificity you get, the more you lose sight of you know what the actual point is. So for me. Someone calling themselves, someone saying that my ideology is this, this, and that, that, this, and that, that. The question I would have for them, if we're having a conversation, is like, okay, so how does this inform your outlook on life? Well, like, how does this, how does this describe yeah. what you see? <laughs> things occur so like, if in you, the world. If you, if you, if you, if you look in your, if you look in your neighborhood and you see that rent is going up, and you see that people are being forced out of their homes because rent is going up, how does that worldview? You about that. How, how is your approach yeah like how, how would you describe that situation how would you understand that situation with this ideology how does anarcho-primitism inform your reaction to seeing a news article that says you know goldman sachs has done something or you know rents in london has increased 200 percent since 2009 how is anarcho-primitism informing because who knows there might be an answer that i don't know there might be someone there might be an anarcho-primitism there might be an there might be an amprim that has done this thinking is that the research oh yeah because yeah. what usually happens is that the more specificity that you get into the less real world focus that you see it just becomes sort of like you know you're, you're just collecting medals. You're saying every amprim believes you. this. Every amprim believes this. back to the overall opinion. Of yeah, that. yeah. They could not they could give them of... a thing and say, "Look, right, how does your ideology tell us to fix this? Who is the bad guy in this situation? How would yeah. you? How would your ideology describe the solution to this problem?" 
never really they, yeah, they never that, really that doesn't really factor into the thinking require too much you know in-depth analysis for them to come up with whereas if you had like an actually well thought out ideology you might be yeah. able to say oh look you know give this given this example this is going on who's you know i can tell you who i think is the villain in the situation i can tell yeah. you how i think that this should be solved in an ideological ideological sense there's a lot of these like an anprim i can think of a ton of things you could ask an anprim and they just go like oh well you just we should have houses in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> and and the thing is, I'm not even saying my my whole point with this isn't even saying that my my ideology is the only correct one. Obviously, I believe certain things because I believe them. But the entire yeah. point is that, like, if you have a worldview, right? If you have an idea of what society, of the type of world you want to live in, and that worldview is informed by certain things, then there are certain conversations that you should be able to have very easily because those involve common assumptions like even though i'm a marxist Leninist, i can talk with many people that are marxist but have concrete ideologies because there are certain assumptions that we share and even if we don't share those assumptions we agree on what the options are because yeah someone who is not a marxist Leninist might disagree with me when it comes to uh, whether or not uh, there should be one party in a government if I believe that the only party that should be allowed to exist is the Communist Party, and someone else says that, well, there shouldn't, we shouldn't make it a law that it should only be a Communist Party. But I agree that, blah, blah, blah. like, that's how you can have a conversation, and it's grounded in something real. Especially when you go into things like super specific, um, you know, issues like abortion, things like, you know, um, healthcare, things like um, monetary systems. All these things are things that, like, not necessarily normal people are obliged to have an opinion on, but there are things that are relevant issues for our time, especially when you go to things like gay marriage, things like, um, yeah, um, you know, trans, uh, transgenderism, like, uh, not transgenderism, being transgender or like, um, just gender, all this sort of like, um, the complicated like gender questions or gender issues that are going on in today's society, like in the, in the modern world, these are all issues that like will affect us and so it's nice to have a well thought out ideology that can inform your approach to these on nearly everything because it's not even that i'm saying that everyone needs to know the answer to everything no but just having the right approach saying what are your priorities in addressing this because the thing is there are nuanced conversations i have about all of this there might be someone who is like a normal first world progressive who thinks that uh oh you know, uh, China is bad because they don't allow gay marriage. And then the question I would ask them is that there's assumptions that you're making about marriage in society. And why do you think that people in China also make those assumptions? Because remember that, like, if you want to have a nuanced conversation, a conversation that you can have is, as a society, why does marriage exist in the first place? Not to talk of, like, just let's just have that conversation. Why does marriage exist? And then you say, Oh, marriage used to be a tool of you know wealth and property transfer in the days when women didn't have rights and they used to, you know, basically just be pawns for their fathers. Yeah, a lot of time it was, a, it was just a, a tool for personal gain amongst yeah, people. It was, yeah. not, this so, is where it comes from. It does not yeah. come from <laughs> people it's would not, marry it's sort of idealized. Yeah, it's not a sort of just yeah, the web families together. <laughs> yeah, there's this, there's this ideation and there's this like um romanticism of marriage of like true love. But like, if you look at marriage, that's something that's a very recent development that's happened in the last 100 years. Because even before the days of like, even before the industrial revolution, 
people didn't necessarily get married out of like you know oh my god they got married mainly for participation in society because yeah. because of the society that we lived in if you were a woman that wasn't married it was very very difficult for you to participate in society to, with the same level of freedom because this is the time before women could even vote so if you're talking about uh female suffrage that only became something that was standard in the last i want to say 70 years probably going back to like 19 1950 1940 something was probably the last time that it was like a normal thing for women not to be able to vote generally speaking since like 1950 women being able to vote has been very you know standard but there are other aspects of society where if you're a woman that wasn't married it was very very difficult to navigate those parts of society so if you're someone who's having a conversation about gay marriage and you're saying that okay um any country that allows gay marriage is good any country that doesn't allow gay marriage is bad me as a masculinist my approach would be okay why why are we assuming that marriage is something that is fundamental to society that we need to have if we lived in a society where for example housing schooling uh food getting a job none of these required marriage there was enough economic um there was enough economic safety in that society where people didn't feel the need to get married to you know generate wealth if this was a society that outgrew the concept of wealth and outgrew the concept of you know property ownership where you need to get married to buy a house with your husband if the society had moved past all of those things to what end would securing the rights for gay people to get married you know like like when you think about it in those terms you can see how accessory it is like gay marriage of course i'm not saying that gay marriage is bad because yeah in itself, Obviously. this whole yeah. need to couch every single political belief in moral good or moral bad is itself something that can be questioned. I think Where... people obviously avoid the the truth that a lot of things in the world, they if you create an incentive for people to do things, they will do them. And if you remove the incentive, it won't happen. Mm-hmm. If there's no incentive to get married, then no one will get married. Yeah. It's just that it doesn't. And the, it's and just the, assumption and that everything how it is now is must have happened yeah, for a reason. Yeah, it must exist exactly. because it's a fundamental and, feature of humans. And, and I'm like, there's so many things that are artificially present in our world that they don't real. They're not facets yeah. of human civilization. They just exist because at one point someone thought yeah. this is a good idea. And that person was and usually it, in the 1930s to, advertising executive. So many yeah, things that we consider like fundamental aspects of society now came from like people wanting to sell something. In yeah, the like 30s. marriage, the whole concept wedding, of wedding rings. No one yeah, had wedding rings. I was rings about there. to say that. No, dude. I was about to say diamond no. wedding rings. The, the De Beers Diamond Company found a load of diamonds in South Africa, and they're like, "Oh, we could sell these. They're quite yeah. pretty." Oh, well, how yeah. should we? How should we market <laughs> this? Hang on, let's make. Let's invent the wedding ring. And the thing, and and just to clarify, (laughs) just just to clarify, right? I'm not someone that believes that like it's wrong for gay people to get married. My 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 approach is that why is it that we see marriage as a means to achieving something that we could just make a fact of our society? Because the reason the reason why the reason why it is wrong that countries ban this, like I said, this is something where if you have an approach, if you have an ideology that informs your outlook on life. You can come to these conclusions. The reason why it's wrong that some countries do allow people to get married is that those same countries bar unmarried people from doing certain things. 
if you want to, for example, adopt a child, if you want to, for example, buy a house and you're not married, it's harder to do those things. That is why it's a problem for it's society a- to discriminate against gay people when it comes to marriage because marriage is already a form of discrimination marriage is already a tool for discrimination when it comes to excluding certain people from society so to say that gay people can't get married is a roundabout way to say that gay people can't participate in society that's that's the that's the that's the fundamental reason for marriage as we understand it today that is the same reason why they could they could take they could understand why a German left wing party wouldn't care about healthcare because they've got healthcare in their country, like, yeah. is, which is a, but they then can't apply that same logic to a, a, an East an Asian or an African country, you know, with the with the gay marriage they can't apply that yeah. same logic. Mm-hmm. Why this? Why does this country not care about X? And then yes, you, you do the thinking. It's yeah, because they just it project, they just project a, the Western uh, Western morality on those countries and assume that the country the has already world. got something or it doesn't fundamentally matter to the organization of the society, why yeah. would they want it? <laughs> the, the, another good example, just to, just to, just to say, th- that's, a, that's the same reason why interracial marriage used to be illegal. Because marriage was a way to discriminate. Marriage was a way to say, this white man cannot share his property, share his wealth with a black woman, yeah. create an interracial child. Like, do, that was the sort of thinking that went into it. If you as a society eliminate all those means of discrimination, marriage becomes something that is just basically, you know, a, an, an aside. That's why, like, if I was, like, in my, you know, ideal world or whatever, there would only be weddings. But marriage as a concept would not exist. If you wanted to have a wedding, you can have a wedding. But you're not gaining anything material from being married. Because, remember, why, why do people get married? When you're married, you pay fewer taxes. When you're married, you can, you know, share property. You can transfer property. If we eliminated all those things, the only point of getting married would just be to have fun and get married. <laughs> that was that's it, the whole point. Removes, so that's that's one remove, example. It's effectively removing marriage as like a thing on those lists that you have to fill out when you fill out a government form. Yeah, it's no longer on the list. It no longer matters. Yeah, it no Bible, longer matters. The Bible itself, there was no wedding ceremonies in the Bible yeah. because a, a marriage was just. A man and a, a man and a woman. Obviously, you know that's the classic marriage being a man and a woman. A man mm-hmm. and a woman having the consent of the father, and they were together. They were married. There was no. There's no pages in the Bible where someone goes to a wedding because it doesn't. And, it and just to just to connect it to connect it back to China, to, to connect it back to China. The reason that China does have gay marriage is because their cultural understanding of marriage is completely different from in the West. In China, their cultural understanding of marriage is a societal role that can be played by childbearing couples being able to bear a child is something that is fundamental in chinese culture to the idea of getting married which is why gay people in china there is nothing there's no aspect of society that discriminates based on marriage in that way marriage in china doesn't have the same cultural significance that it has in the west just because as a chinese citizen you're entitled to many things that you can get without being married, that you can get without, you know, necessarily having to have a child. And the same so way that there's, the same becomes, way there's no one in China advocating for gay marriage is also the same way there's no one in China saying marriage between a man and a woman. Yeah. And that approach is where you can have the sense of, like, Chinese people will determine Chinese politics. So if gay marriage becomes something that the Chinese people come to the conclusion that this is something that we can't do without, they are the ones that will have that conversation with their government 
and it will then be acted on in the way that they determine you in america in pennsylvania cannot be the one that will tell china that they have to uh, make gay marriage legal because you haven't done the dialectical materialist analysis of chinese people and chinese culture and chinese society to understand the role that marriage plays and why it's different from america that's just one example another example is abortion the most common thing that americans or like western leftists like to do is that they like to look at third world countries where abortion is illegal and say wow this country is backwards they, they like to look at nicaragua or any like spanish-speaking country and they'll be like lol nicaragua uh doesn't allow abortion they won't remind you they won't remember that like 97 percent of nicaragua is catholic and they won't even reason why is it <laughs> why is it that 97 percent of nicaragua is catholic how did that come to be even africa every african country has a reputation for being homophobic for being you know against gay marriage against gay rights no one ever but thinks oh, every, I wonder, every I wonder indigenous, why this is a thing every indigenous african language has gender neutral name has yeah. um has a pantheon of gods that use multiple pronouns that change their gender at will. Gender, well, yeah. it has a has a creation myth where um there was a, a sexual reproduction involved these these are the sorts of indigenous cultures that you see in in native american indigenous cultures we have this concept of like a multiple spirits person where you can have inside you you can have two spirits you can have multiple you can have you know a a, a gender identity that's distinct from your physical appearance indigenous cultures we see this sort of thing but then what happens is that because of imperialism because of you know western religion because of catholicism protestant christianity you know these white people came to these places and imbibed violently imbibed these religions into the culture there and that those cultures then informed the thinking and then because economic progress was stalled in those countries because of that same imperialism that is how you can see the west as because everyone knows that economic progress leads to social progress. This is something that has been observed multiple times in yeah, course it's, of history. It's almost every part of history. Almost <laughs> every aspect of history, a richer, the richer parts of 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 the, like any part of any any part of the world, the richest parts in that place will be the most socially forward and culturally you know, progressive. The reason why I was telling you about how much gay sex the Romans had. And the, exactly. No one, exactly. No one talking about the Germanic five <laughs> doing it. Because no, the Romans no, 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 had a lot of money and a lot of free time to do it. <laughs> exactly. And so you, you, we can see now, we can, we can perform this analysis on the rest of the world. We can see that, like, why is it that in the first world, generally speaking, first world countries are more accepting of uh, uh, gay people and transgender people, and third world countries are less so? Because the first world has had more economic progress since, you know, the end of colonialism than yeah. those other countries. And the funny thing is that even if you look inside the first world, Inside those first world countries, the poor parts tend to be less accepting, less tolerant, more yeah, bigoted than the like urban the, rich areas. And it's the same dynamic in the third world. If you go to Nigeria, <laughs> there's gay people in Abuja, there's gay people in Lagos. But you won't really see as many gay people in like, the individual, the small cities in, in, in the rural area. It's all urban because... This is something that has been proven time and time again in every single country in the world since roughly the end of 1990. I mean, the end of um, basically the end of um, World War II, where we have this dynamic under capitalism, where the same 
I'm I'm trying to see how to phrase it. Basically, like um, if you look at every country in the world, right? Um, I'm trying to think of how to how to phrase this correctly in a way that um, in a way that will make sense. But basically, if I like, basically the point I'm trying to say is that in every country in the world that we can see, the same forces that concentrates this sort of like infrastructure spending, economic and cultural capital in, let's say, the global north, for example, at the expense of the rest of the world, those same forces will concentrate those same spending, those same economic and cultural capital in the richest parts of the global north at the expense of the rest of the global north. So this applies even no matter how much you zoom in. For the UK, the same forces that concentrate infrastructure spending, um, you know, economic and cultural capital in the UK at the expense of the rest of um, Europe are the same forces that concentrate those same things in the richest part of the UK at the expense of the poorest part of the UK. Yeah. In, in London itself, the same forces that concentrate uh, economic, uh, cultural capital, infrastructure spending in West London, those same forces heighten the, the lack of those things in the poorer parts of London. It's the yeah. same dynamic that's repeated over and over and over and over. That's why we can see the, all, the, all the countries of the world, they are not developing at the same pace because the world isn't equal, because there is a lot of imbalances of power in the world that we live in. That is why this sort of, um, this dynamic that we see of like first worders saying that, oh, this country is back. It's not that the country is backwards. Is that the country's natural rate of development has been stalled by external just, forces? No one, the was never a thing. It's never occurred, and it baffles me. Yeah, it's and just it's, you it's... know, if you drag the timeline along for these poorer countries and drag it, you know, say they are, say you pick a time that the of economic development that the UK was at, uh, you know, 100, 200 years ago, and match a country that exists like that now. Mm-hmm. Play the timeline. Fast forward. What you will find is, is that that country will have the same values as yours does today, because it will have caught up economically. That's just yeah. And that's why. That's why to do that, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> that's why. It, it, that's why in every country you look, generally speaking, you can see the same dynamic happen everywhere. If you go to any like you know major city, the that city will generally vote for the leftist party, and then the rally has to vote for the more right wing party. That's usually what you see. And then on a larger level, the more richer subregions like states or provinces would generally vote for the, you know, more progressive, more blah, blah, blah. The, the, re, the, the dynamic that puts a stop to that mostly is where that leftist party isn't focused on economics because usually what we see under neoliberalism is that the sort of like progressive, culturally progressive parties, they stop focusing on economics because those parties are all beholden to basically big corporations. They've married themselves to the company. So they can't really, um, they can't really um, advocate for as much economic progress as people want because they are, you know, ideologically in bed with like big corporations and all those things on that, that it does make me agree. really laugh it makes me laugh so much when right-wingers pretend like facebook and youtube and google are left-wing it just kills oh, me it's, it's so just funny completely ignore i mean the, yeah Americans might be liberal but it completely ignores the economic aspect of being left-wing it just it pretends like it doesn't exist mm. when they go around telling you how left i was like amazon don't want to pay taxes as much as you yeah. don't want to pay taxes no, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just, to go, just to go back to the whole me and my ideology 
The reason why it's so funny is because these people, when it then is time to do any sort of like real world political, even just have a conversation, these people have no idea how to approach because yeah. they're not informed by anything. They don't have any basis for what they believe. It, it, over, their no sort of, over their ideology. I, I describe just, it as sort of a, they have a two-stage view of anal- analyzing the world, whereas anyone with a brain has a three-stage view. But the mm-hmm. two-stage view is like, so and Prims is an example. They'll take the Prim part and they'll be like, industrialization is bad, and therefore and industrialization causes this bad thing. But they will not then think the third stage, the stage they step zero, which is the step they missed out, which is what caused industrialization? What caused industrialization yeah. to get this bad? Why yeah. is industrialization necessary? You know, they're just missing out the... Anyway. They're always just one more question anyway. And the reason they're one more question anyway is because their view of the world doesn't teach them the right questions to ask. The yeah. only reason I was able to become what I am is from asking the right questions. That's why I'll always tell people this. I used to be someone who didn't know as much, but I knew the right questions to ask because I had the right approach. I and, think I think I was quite similar, obviously from a different direction. Because yeah, my whole life, obviously, I am as we've been. I'm literally the guy we've been talking about here, the, the white, comfortable, <laughs> you know, the yeah. nice life. It doesn't really matter who this country votes for. I'm fine yeah. regardless. However, mm-hmm. you know, like so, I started off the, going back to even right at the start. The, I had friends who were watching PewDiePie videos and they were laughing. I had literally had mates that were like these Gamergate, like how cringe are SJW videos. And I looked yeah. at that and I was like, "That's a bit strange. That's, I don't, I don't get what's wrong with that." So like, so I'm slowly making this slow crawl leftwards just by asking the correct. Right? I'm looking at things. I'm like, "Oh, I like you know these social programs, these healthcare initiatives, you know what?" And then I'm like, "Well, these have enemies. Obviously, there are villains of these ideas. You know, there's people who don't want a nice social safety net. There's people that don't want to increase benefit pays. But then you ask, well, why? Why do these people?" Mm-hmm not want that if you keep asking why it's like the silly physics thing if you keep asking why you'll end up asking why the universe is a thing it's all yep. like that <laughs> yeah. so, exact same dynamic you, say, you can have a if, if, I, like this a thing applies to me ideologies with people not asking enough questions to you know, just yeah. let their ideology inform itself but i think it does obviously apply to social democrats it applies to most people yeah. even in the center if you just mm-hmm. think i have a bunch of these opinions that sort of collect themselves into a group and I agree with them wholeheartedly. What is the link between them? Is there an underlying cause that's making yeah. these problems that I don't like happen? And once you ask that question, it's when you start to unlock another... And, and I think fundamentally, the approach that I've had to politics ever since I want to say like 2019-ish is that basically I think every political ideology can be boiled down to do you believe that society should have hierarchies or do you believe that society shouldn't have hierarchies? Do you believe that there should be different kinds of people in society where some are higher than others? There's a sort of verticality to society, to the world. It's where a some ladder that you can climb. Yeah. Or do you believe that the world, the society should be horizontal and everyone is equal and everyone is, you know, on the same level? If you fundamentally believe that everyone should be equal, then you're someone that can have a conversation with you're someone that can you know have common ground with you're someone that you can have an approach where everything is guiding you back towards that ground zero whatever someone who fundamentally believes that hierarchies are nothing then you're someone that i can i'll just always fundamentally disagree with because no matter what you say to me it will come down to the fact that you think that people being above and below each other is something that is not inherently and I don't even want to say inherently bad because 
I don't believe in any sort of like moral characterization. I don't believe that my beliefs are the good beliefs or I'm a good person that, for thinking is, them. Moral characterization is very much a Western thing. It's yeah, very much it's a... <laughs> simply, this is just what I believe. I agree with it. And because I agree with it, because I believe it. I don't think you just, that it's you feel it's correct. good. Yeah. I, I just, yeah. these are my ideals and I agree with those ideals. There is like, not any sort of, I don't think I'm a good person for believing in Marxism. What I believe is just that there is a certain view of the world that I agree with. And Marxism Leninism aligns with that. It's not a sort of moral calculation where I'm trying to see what opinion can I have that will make me a good person. No, that's not how I view politics because when you do that is when you can be easily duped by this sort of like reactionary, um, any sort of like moral panic politics. Like, oh my God, trans people are going to rape children in bathrooms. Those, yeah. those are the type of people that you get. It's when you start to you start to you start to let the the group idea describe your opinions rather than letting the process exactly. of thought describe exactly. your ideas. You know, like, like there's right wingers, the people that aren't that right wing, the people that are moderately right wing that I cannot agree with because if they started asking the questions why to themselves, because obviously because their perspective is they'll disagree. You know, they don't yeah. like these sorts of events, yeah, they don't people, like free healthcare. If they start um, asking why, what are the things that are causing all these people to that I disagree with to like these things? They'll end up with the I like hierarchical societies point. That's yeah, where they'll end up. Exactly. And not, they might not be that right wing. Some will be like, oh, you, some people call me ridiculous for not having some sort of common ground with them. But I'm like, ultimately, their opinions take them to there. Yeah. And my opinions take me the other direction. Those are the people who, who you ask them, um, why is it that you oppose um, $15 minimum wage? And those are people that, when you ask enough questions, they're not saying that they don't think they should earn the same amount of money as. Or a McDonald's worker because they fundamentally don't believe that like they should be on the same level of society. They fundamentally believe that they should always be. They should. They're entitled to the rights to have a higher social standing than people like that. They should they have a monetary reward for being yeah, there. <laughs> they fundamentally don't believe that like rich and poor people existing is something that they disagree with. They don't think that. What they they might maybe agree that maybe poor people shouldn't have it that bad. They should, there should be safeguards for you know, poor people. But they yeah. wouldn't go as far as saying that like everyone should make the same amount of money, or rather, there should be no difference in society, no matter what level of money you make. These are people who, they're like, I reserve the right to have a better car than poor people. I want you to drive fast cars, rich. Yeah, I want you to... My house should have a larger series of windows and yes, have a nicer live, housing, housing <laughs> is the biggest housing is the biggest sort of like political litmus test because you have some people who are like i want to be able to have a big house that is yeah. something that is i i believe that society should enable me to have a three-story house with seven bedrooms and a two-car garage and then you have people who are like i believe that everyone should have the fundamental right to have housing but some houses should be better than other houses if yeah. those people can afford it. They're, they're still sort of like, they won't go as far as saying everyone in society. Because the idea that everyone's society should be equal is something that like has been very successfully ingrained in our culture as a bad thing. People don't want, because it's, just, it's seen as sort of like spook of communism, of like, oh, the, the reason why communism the, is bad is because... Those pictures of those uh, brutalist apartment blocks. Yeah. That's what you want. <laughs> <laughs> you want. Yeah. It's like, the reason why communism is bad is because communism wants everybody to be equal. And it's like, yeah, that's a, that's a bad thing. I don't want to be equal. I want to be me. And it's just like, when you have those assumptions, they sort of engender the approach. 
to just just to sort of like wrap it up, like to just boil everything down. The entire point is that meme ideologies don't really do anything to inform a correct outlook on life. They don't really do anything to inform a worldview. All they do is tell people that they belong to a certain identity. And if you belong to this identity, then you believe these certain things. And if you don't belong to this identity, then you don't believe in these certain things. And that is not the right way to navigate politics. The right way to navigate politics is to ask yourself from the beginning, what kind of world do I want to live in? What does that world look like? What does it, you know, what does it have to say for black people, for women, for gay people, for trans people? What type of world does that look like? And then from there, your approach can be informed by asking questions that lead you towards the right path that you want. There's no universal right path that's correct. There's the path that you believe in. And the best way to navigate politics, in my opinion, is to expand your worldview as much as possible, to incorporate other people's worldviews that you've never been familiar with before. For example, growing up in Nigeria, I had never talked to a trans person in my life. I didn't know anything about transness. It was not something that I had any context for even understanding. The only exposure I had to trans people was Western media making like dick jokes and like man in a dress jokes. That was my only exposure to trans. It wasn't until I actually in real life talked to people that were trans and expanded my worldview and I understood that, oh, this is actually why people are trans and this is how they view the world. And I don't believe in a world that makes those people's lives any harder. That is how I can, no matter what happens, I can never have an opinion on this that is transphobic because I already know that I don't believe in a world where trans people don't have the same rights as me. But some people haven't done that calculus yet. Some people might simply, they might not have that fully grounded approach. So they might just say, what is the XYZ-ism opinion on uh, hormones? And then they might say, oh, uh, if a child is 18, if a child is 18, the hormones might fry their brain. So uh, gender therapy is bad and like it's morally incorrect. That is how people can fall down the wrong path of like believing in these opinions that are bigoted because they don't have the right approach. If you have the right approach, there is you don't even necessarily need to read all the books in the world. Just from having that right approach, you can ask the right questions and fundamentally arrive at a conclusion to something that makes you an ally. And you've never read any gender book in your life, but you just know that you don't believe in a world where someone who is using pronouns that they weren't born with has a, a more difficult life than you. So that's, that's just my, my take on things, is that if you fundamentally believe hierarchies shouldn't exist, not even the hierarchies are bad, just the hierarchies shouldn't exist, then you and me basically have the same common ground, we can ask the same sorts of questions, and you can arrive at the same conclusions. But if you're someone who hasn't even done any of this yet, who hasn't thought about any of this, that's what you need to realize. You need to be like, okay, what kind of world do I actually believe in? You know? So basically, if you're me, like, like three years ago, is what we're saying, if you're that person... <laughs> Come along. See, it's a great, it's a great time. It's really fun. Yeah. It's really exciting. But yeah, the thing is, just dissociate in yourself from what the because it's not even necessarily like. I'm not saying that your culture and the world you live in, like you know, has been feeding you like propaganda and this type of thing. Yeah. But just the world, the where you're from, obviously describes who you yeah. are as a person. 
and what you'll believe in, what you'll think is normal, what you'll think is abnormal. You just when you're trying to come to a decision on what you think, why do you think this happens, why do you think what do you think should happen? Try to come to it in a way that is not informed based on your cultural beliefs and based on form what you think is normal and try and think how is this improving in this place the material conditions of these people you know what i mean yeah. like what is making these people more equal regard don't you know this is it's like a, a lot of westerners and it's everyone in the west they'll probably see, it'll probably happen in reverse in the east yeah. it won't, won't won't be able to detach themselves from their culture and what they think is just normal general life and can't can't analyze something and come to an understanding of something without applying what already exists as the structure in their own world as what's normal, you know. Yeah. The reason why there are Muslims that aren't homophobic is not because those people have the correct reading of the Quran and the homophobic Muslims don't have the correct reading of the Quran. The reason why there are Muslims who are for gay rights is because those Muslims understand that they don't want to live in a world where gay people are discriminated against. No matter what their religious beliefs are. And then they can actually perform the work that goes into synthesizing their religion and their political beliefs. Because this is something that is very important in society. I'm not one of those edgy atheists that thinks that, you know, all religion is bad and it doesn't lead to social progress. Everything no. has to be secular and all that jazz. Because I understand that like spirituality is an important aspect of life for many, many yeah. people. So the what what you see in spiritual circles aren't bigoted is that those spiritual circles have already done all of this they've already understood that they don't want to live in a world that's bigoted and if their religion contributes to that bigotry then instead of renouncing that religion they understand that like we aren't beholden to dead people because there is nothing in these religious texts that says this is how things should be no one has ever said that the bible said that being gay is bad what always happens is that there is a cultural assumption that the correct way to navigate life is being straight and then naturally when those assumptions exist the next logical step is to make life harder for people that are straight because what happens is that people make laws people organize society people build buildings people you know organize everything about life becomes arranged in a way that assumes that everybody in that society that we want, that we care about anyway is straight that's how you can end up with because the thing with marriage and the thing with um adoption no one the laws are almost never written in a way where it's specifically identifying gay people as like gay people adopt what is always written it's... in a way as is like only men and women can get married yeah, because the assumption is that the only people who would ever want to get married are man. That's how it's written. And when it, two two men want to get married, they're like, we can't do that because no good. And then that's where you have the justifications because the natural question is why isn't it allowed? And then you have to answer it. So having this approach, even if you're religious, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that you can't have the rights. You, you, you know, lose your religion because your religion, you know, yeah. Because the people in that religion that have whatever. done that have done this, they have done this calculation long before you were born and they were able to not be bigots because they understood the type of world that they wanted to live in yeah it's just there's a lot of ideas like that there's these liberal you know they'll, they'll describe the news like the saudi whatever and they're trying to liberalize islam and it's like it's not that they're just suddenly waking up and being like oh, actually this passage this passage in the quran actually means this thing yeah. it's not what they're saying it's just that there are people that have come to the conclusion that you said 
obviously we both said countless times now that this is how they want the world mm-hmm. to be organized and they've framed work their world around that it's not that just suddenly walk up one day and christianity it's already yeah. happened in the western world christianity you know they didn't wake no one in england woke up one day and said you know what the yeah. bible is wrong about gays you know we've been getting it wrong this whole time it's bollocks people just generally over time as they understood that it didn't make sense game, to exclude certain people from know, society wealth was spread around that people people kind of understood it, it yeah, and then they framework what they kept. Their, you know, they didn't abandon Christianity. Yeah. They kept their faith. It's the same reason why organized it around. It's that the belief. same reason why things like woke capitalism and pink capitalism exist because those same companies understood that actually we make less money if we exclude our target audience, if we make our target audience smaller. The reason why every June, people like Disney and people like you know every company in the world puts a rainbow as their avi is because they understand that like if gay people hate them, they're literally making less money. This is it's cynical as hell. It's just, yeah. <laughs> this is an example of like these systems not being iri- uh, immutable and you know if not they can't ever be changed. Because it's the same thing with religions. Religions are making that cultural calculation and they're saying that like if we want to still have there be future generations of Christians that will keep working in this church when I'm dead, we can't make our Target audience smaller because that's how religions die out. You, you can't you can't hold the opinion that loses ground. Yeah, you know, you can, they, every companies, religions, everything they can sense yeah. a direction. Regardless, yeah. however, that's the whole, you know one of the big flaws of conservatism is it holds a ground that's ultimately going to lose. It will yeah. over time it is being degraded away. And if you want to survive on into the future, you need to go with the direction that a society yeah. moves in. You know these like these religions will see millions and millions of people come out as gay and all this all that stuff, and they will move in that direction because otherwise they're doomed. It's yeah. not, <laughs> they're not going to be a religion for much longer. There's tons of religions that don't exist anymore. You know, yeah, exactly. obviously for a variety of reasons, but a lot of it could well well down to the fact that society moved on from what they believed. believed. Yeah, it, you know. it's an example of uh, because religion has always been not. This is a religion podcast, <laughs> but like religion <laughs> has always been. Time to describe the world, you know. It's it, yeah. it's an idea to make sense of the world. And there used to be a time where there were cultures that believed in rain god because they couldn't explain the fact that like every few days water would fall from the sky. As as a as an early human, there's just no way to rationalize that beyond it being divine, beyond there being some sort of supernatural force that, when conditions are right, just rains down water on the world. So they they came up with an explanation that like there had to be some deity that controlled rain and when that deity was happy with us he blessed us or she blessed us or they blessed us with rain and when they were angry with us they they withheld that rain so we needed to make sure we give offerings we needed to make sure that we kept that rain god happy so that rain came but then as society moved forward as technology improved we understood that oh actually the reason why it rains is because the sun shines on bodies of water and makes water evaporate and it gets stored in the sky in the form of clouds and then when the temperature becomes too uh, high to keep uh, those clouds in gaseous form, the water condenses and falls back down to the earth as rain. People were able to understand that, and then over time, they understood that, oh, praying to a rain god every day does actually mean so let's not do that. And that's, that's the reason why there's not really that many rain gods in like modern culture. But there is still, you know, Yahweh and Allah, because people don't yet know how the universe came to be. So yeah. <laughs> those, those, that level of deity still has precedence. 
we can still fundamentally see that God created the world, or Allah created the world, and that's why the world is this way. But even then, those things are constantly being undermined because we're finding things like archaeological evidence of dinosaurs that lived at a time frame where these religious texts could not have possibly <laughs> accounted for that. And I feel, I feel for people to have to make sense of those things because these, these religious texts weren't written the idea of any sort of a universal a good standard of like time even as a concept is just very very difficult to square with you know the way we live life now but like all that work is still ongoing and the whole point of all this is just to say that like all these things are malleable it's not possible to ideologically win there is no sort of like correct there's no end goal to all of yes, this there's no end goal all of this is a lifelong process it's a lifelong conversation that people have with themselves and with other people to approach it's almost like uh it's uh, like a it's like an algebra like uh the limit of something approaching zero everyone is trying to approach that world that they want to see but they can never get there you can't yeah, catch it, it, it because it, as it approaches zero it is, it's a plural yeah. for a reason it's never going yeah. to get to zero it's but never it going approach. to approach and as we approach that world i want to see conditions will improve for everybody so all That's... we can do is keep 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 moving towards that goal and just having the right goal what is what allows that to be possible yeah 